My favorite teacher in elementary school was Mrs. Meeks. What made Mrs. Meeks so very special was that she just understood at a profound level what makes the average second grade human being tick. Which is to say, she knew exactly how to motivate us to learn, how to keep us from misbehaving, how to ensure that we were kind to one another, and it all revolved around her one unshakable philosophical conviction, bribery. <laughs> the form that that philosophy took for Mrs. Meeks was that she printed her own fake money and she handed it out to reward us for good behavior. She called them funny bucks. Funny bucks were laminated strips of green paper designed using every feature that Microsoft Paint from Windows 95 had to offer, including, of course, the glowing countenance of Mrs. Meeks herself, right there in the center where American presidents typically reside. And every Friday, while we were in the cafeteria for lunch, Mrs. Meeks would set up in our classroom the Funny Bucks Bazaar, where we then had 20 minutes to spend our money on candy or bouncy balls or all other manner of plastic delights. And to this day, I simply cannot think about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's without thinking about that glowing countenance of Mrs. Meeks on the laminated funny bucks. On the surface of this story with Jesus, we have yet another attempt by the religious and politically elite to catch Jesus in some kind of trap. If Jesus says yes, that you should pay the tax, then he'll be vulnerable to the fringe revolutionary left within the people of Israel. That is, those who wanted to overthrow the oppressive yoke of Rome, no matter the cost, whatever the violence required. Surely, Jesus did not want to make himself out to be an enemy to Israel's independence. But on his right, politically, he was vulnerable to the Herodians, who the text goes, us, uh, goes out of the way to tell us were present. The Herodians were the loyal-to-Rome Jewish politicians. And for Rome, a refusal to pay your taxes was equivalent to an act of war. So if Jesus said, don't pay your taxes, there's no doubt the Herodians would have immediately gone running to tell mommy and daddy, who history proves would not hesitate to throw down the hammer. And Jesus, as ever, threads the needle with winsome elegance. You could take Jesus' famous phrase to mean something like, sure, pay your taxes, just remember that the state's authority is limited and temporary, and God's is always and forever. You see, Jesus gives both sides just enough to avoid inciting their violent rage. One can't help but wonder if avoiding the violence wasn't the whole point. But I do think there's something deeper going on in this story that emerges if you just sit with it long enough. I encourage you to put yourselves 
in the shoes not of the Pharisees or the Herodians, but of simply a neutral bystander to this event. That is, imagine yourself not as one of those, cynically searching for ways to stamp out the influence of emerging political threats, like apparently everyone serving in our House of Representatives. <laughs> but instead, you are someone who is genuinely interested in Jesus and genuinely interested in what it might mean to be his disciple, what it might mean to live a holy life and to experience the depths of joy that seem to be available to those who follow him. Imagine you're someone like that. And imagine, too, that you are someone who is somewhat confused by and anxious about money. That you find it strange that it seems like it's all anyone wants, and yet we never actually talk about it. You notice that people organize their entire lives around trying to get more and more and more of it, and yet you notice that getting more of it doesn't seem to make those people happy. And here you are, you see Jesus surrounded by this media swarm, and someone asks him a question about money, and you think to yourself, oh, actually, I'm quite interested to hear what he has to say. And you hear the famous line, give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And then you begin walking home. And as you walk, you're repeating this line to yourself over and over again, turning it over in your hand like a prism to see what other kinds of light might emerge from it. A quick note on our translation here. The Greek word that's usually translated give, more famously translated as render, that Greek word is apodote, not that you care, um, is really better translated as to return, to, to give back something that was given to you in the first place. Give back to the emperor that which is the emperor's. Give back to God the things that are God's. So you're walking. You're meditating on this line, and you might start by asking yourself, well, what else has Rome given me? Rome has given you a lot more than coins, and it's been a mixed bag, to be sure. Because on the one hand, Rome has given you, you know, roads and infrastructure, the Pax Romana, relative peace, but they also, of course, have kept you under their imperial thumb. They have threatened your way of life, your culture, your traditions. They have made you sacrifice to its gods, made you swear allegiance to its Caesars. Maybe you think giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's is some radical way of saying you don't need to be defined by this oppressive occupation that you don't have to be defined by who your oppressors say that you are. Whatever Rome has put on you, give it back. Dust off your feet. But then, of course, you would move on to the second half 
of Jesus' famous line, you would reflect on that. You might ask yourself the question, well, if that stuff belongs to Caesar, what is God's? What has God given to me? Well, you know the answer to that question. It's everything. Everything good, at least. God has given you this life, this world, these people. God has given you every single blessing that you've encountered, every talent. God has given you every scent, every grace, every wonder, every moment. God has given you every single breath. And so then you might be thinking, back to Caesar again. Because you might ask yourself, wait a second, does anything really belong to Caesar then? Does this denarius really belong to Caesar just because he had his face imprinted on it? Maybe in some extremely limited temporary sense it belongs to Caesar, but isn't it just iron or copper? I don't know what they made coins out of. I didn't look it up. But isn't it just something that they took out of the earth that God made and then stamped the emperor's face on it? Does it really belong to Caesar? Is this land that falls within the boundaries of the quote-unquote Roman Empire, does that land really belong to Rome? Does the property that you and I own really belong to us, maybe in some extremely limited temporary sense? And so as you're reflecting, as this prism is shifting over in your hands, finally comes the kicker. And of course, you've been able to see this coming by now. If God has given you everything, what is Jesus telling you to do in this passage? That's right. Give it all back. What could Jesus possibly mean by this? Of course, if Jesus, if God has given us everything and he's asking us to give him everything back, this is about far more than just money. But let me start by saying something about money. Because I remember so vividly the rush of earning a funny buck. I remember the feeling of that sweet, sweet laminate in my hands. And the delicious backburner dialogue that ran in my head throughout the week, imagining just what I might decide to spend it on that coming Friday. It was mine, and it was power. The trouble is, most of us never really grow out of that mentality when it comes to money. It just becomes a lot more stressful. We're not spending money on G.I. Joes and trips to Chuck E. Cheese. That's right. If you saved up enough funny bucks, you could buy yourself a trip to Chuck E. Cheese. 
We spend our money on mortgages and tuition and taxes and groceries and second mortgages and boats and 17 different streaming services and hospital bills. And if you're me, then also lots of bike stuff. Like seriously, who knew bike stuff was so expensive? Definitely not my wife. See, this text helps us see, I think, two main problems with how we think about our money, how, how we think about how we spend our money. And they lie in the words our and the word spend. First one's obvious. First of all, it's not our money. It's not our money to begin with. Maybe it is in some temporary limited sense, but money, like everything else, is something that we get to look after for a while, but that we cannot ultimately keep. It's not a matter of whether to keep it or give it away. It is always only a matter of who you're going to give it to. Which leads to the second problem, the word spend. To say we spend money gives us a sense of power, of authority, of Confidence that our spending brings something from the outside world into my realm of ownership and authority. And that's also a lie. I think a word that more accurately describes what we do with our money is the word invest. Which is to say, to spend money is always to take some kind of risk. that this new set of bike handlebars is really going to make me happy. <laughs> that this private school tuition really is going to better prepare my child than the public school would. That this vocation, this vacation condo is going to be a gift to our family and friends and not a millstone around our neck. We invest our money in possibilities. And so instead of spending our money, Jesus in this text is calling us instead simply to give it all back to him. I don't think that means to just give it all away, though if you're rich enough, Jesus has been known to make that kind of demand too. I think for most of us, it means trying to make every dollar that we give an investment in the possibilities of God's kingdom. There's nothing wrong with buying a house. That's fine. But what would it look like for you to make your home into a little outpost of God's kingdom? A little training ground of faith, hope, and love. Buy a second home. I don't care. Just make that, too, into some kind of laboratory of joy, peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness for all who pass through it. Invest in a top-tier education for yourself or for your kids, but then ask yourself, what does it mean? What responsibility does this education bring to use it to pursue justice, to enact mercy, and to stand for peace? And you know what else? Pay your taxes. 
Jeff Bezos, I know you regularly tune into our live stream. If you're listening, especially you, pay your taxes. Taxes fuel our public infrastructure and make available basic services that make life livable for many. And give to charities, absolutely give to charities because they provide for those that our government leaves behind. And do give to your church for this is a community of transformational belonging in Christ. Today and for the next two weeks will be in our annual church stewardship campaign. It's that time of the year that we ask you to set aside a little time to plan and to pray and to consider what financial commitment God is calling you to make to this church community for the next year. And Moses, or whoever it is that wrote Leviticus, tried to make this a simple calculation for you a long, long time ago by just telling everyone to set aside 10% for the priests and the temples so the worshiping life of a community could function. So, you know, just do that. <laughs> Make it simple. But whatever percentage you're able to manage this year to support the mission and ministry of this parish, I don't want you to miss the broader point that Jesus is trying to make in this text. Just because you're supposed to give some percentage to the church does not mean that you're not still supposed to give everything back to God. Not just 10%, 100%. I said this is about far more than just what to do with your money. It is. It's about what to do with your whole life. But if you start thinking about your money in this way, I think you might find that the rest of your life will start following behind it. Give everything back to God. Invest your whole life into God. What are you good at? Be good at it for the sake of God's kingdom. Don't just give God your spare time. Give God every minute through being an attentive parent, a loyal friend, a loving partner. Make your whole life into prayer. Make your life into a living sacrifice. Make your life into an offering unto God. Every week in the middle of our liturgy is going to happen in about three minutes. Someone in the congregation processes bread and wine and money from you all up to the altar. And bread and wine and money represent our daily life and work as a community. It represents the fruits of our labor. They represent our offerings to God. And then the priest prays and God transforms that bread and that wine into something different, into the body and blood of Christ. And then those gifts are offered back to you again for the nourishment of your soul. That money is transformed into mission and ministry for the good of our community and offered back to you in all manner of different kinds of gifts. We offer what we have, and God turns even that into gifts and gives it back to us. We give everything 
and God gives us himself. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on, and it never stops. This is the abundant economy of God. So invest in this economy. You only have one life to do it with. Invest in God's abundant economy. Invest everything you have and everything you are into the possibilities of God's kingdom. Why? Because that which is in God lasts forever. And in the end, nothing else does. Amen.